it's always amazing when we're singing these songs and just meditating on what they mean and what the impact of these songs are. And as I was just reflecting on the last one and, you know, we're singing about these terms of battle and armor and victory and, you know, they have all those uh, militaristic kind of uh, connotations. And, you know, we're, we're talking and, and addressing this issue between uh, Israel and the Palestinians. And, you know, this is part four. But it's a great reminder for me and, and, and again for you that th- this is a spiritual endeavor, not a political one. And, and part of the problem that Israel has had a history of getting wrong is that they're, they could sing this song and, and see it in a completely different way and just see the physical, the political, the here and the now and completely miss the cross, completely miss that the victory was in the death of Jesus. The, the prize isn't the dirt in Israel. The prize is the promised land in heaven. And we're the prize. And so when you, when you think of it that way, they, they, they've got it all wrong and they're pursuing all the wrong things. Their, their objectives are wrong. And so that's part of the reason why we wanted to take some time to, to, to study this because it's so impactful, not just a better understanding of, of Israel's future, but a better understanding of our future and, and how those tie in. And how an understanding of of Jewish history helps us to understand the relationship between God and Israel and also the relationship between God and the church, God and the Gentiles, uh, us. Now, we see the the pictures of the the types throughout Scripture where where we can see ourselves um, we can see ourselves individually even through looking at Israel and, and looking how God uh, deals with Israel's sin and disciplines them and punishes them and just to restore them. And we see that individually as well. But we have to be careful that we don't make the, you know, the interpretation mistakes of, of infusing ourselves everywhere for everything. Um, and so, yes, we can glean uh, some application, but make no mistake when we're reading the history of Israel in the Bible, we're reading the history of Israel. Um, and so today we're, we're coming back to, to discuss not only the biblical history of Israel and the Palestinians, but we need to understand as part of Israel's history, we need to, to really get a, a grasp of, of Israel's future. Because Israel does have a future, as we've already read in Romans 11, and we'll get back to Romans 11, but we're going to kind of do a little jet tour through the Old Testament again. And we need to understand Israel's future in order for us to interpret like this current conflict, uh, in order for us to understand the current conflict between Israel and the the Palestinians. And and we're going to look at three different uh, aspects of that one the promise to Israel. Uh, number two, we're going to look at the, the punishment for Israel. And then three, the prediction for Israel. And so we're going to, the promise to Israel, we're going to kind of take a little jet tour through Genesis. 
the punishment for Israel. We're going to take a sneak peek at the minor prophets and then the prediction for Israel. We're going to, again, just take a glance at Romans 11. So the first way to understand Israel's future is, uh, again, we have to understand the promise, the covenant that's made to Israel. That's the foundation. The foundation of everything you see today of our complete understanding of Israel's future is going back to Genesis 12, going back to the Abrahamic covenant, the, the, the covenant, the promise of land. That is the dirt that's in the, the nation of Israel today, the land of the Canaanites, the, the seed that is Christ, and then the blessing, which is Abraham's descendants, which also extends to the Gentiles. And so the Abrahamic covenant then becomes a, an anchor for, for our faith, an anchor for biblical understanding and interpretation. It's reinforced many times in Genesis 15, uh, 18 through 21, we see the covenant uh, given to Abraham and his descendants. So not just Abraham. And this is where we get the first concept of from the river to the sea. It's from the river land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Canaanite to the sea. And so this is not made by politicians, not made by kings. It's made by the Lord God himself. It's reinforced in Numbers 34, again, reinforced in Ezekiel 47, as far as the territory itself. So this is God ordained. Genesis 17, 1 through 13 reminds us that the, there, there will be a multitude of nations that, that comes from uh, the offspring of Abraham. And even more importantly, it will be everlasting. It's not temporary. It's not just for the original history of the Israelites. It's not just for the first century. It's not just for 20. 20 it is forever this covenant promise is everlasting it was repeated to sarah in genesis 21 and and extended through isaac and again the reminder to their descendants and their descendants in genesis 22 would be as numerous as the stars as numerous as the the the, the grains of sand at the beach uh, i remember when i first read that and from then on, the going to the beach has never been the same. If you've ever put your toesies, you know, in the in the sand of the beach, right? And you, it's it's you just see all the all the little granules, and it's like that's God's promise. And then you look to your left, and you look to your right, and it just goes on. It's it's the the idea is this this amount of stars and sand is just endless. It's a multitude. We saw this reinforced to Jacob in Genesis. Uh, 28 in Jacob's dream and he sees the land of descendants as the dust of the earth again spread from the west to the east to the north and to the south it's all this area is going to be given to to Israel and its descendants Genesis 25 Jacob's reminded that there will be kings that come out of them Remember, at this point in time, they're just a, a, a small tribe of people and they're going to be promised that there would be kings. And we have, again, biblical history is history. History is biblical history. And we have books talking about the kings of Israel, which again is important because you have people today on planet Earth that want to claim that Israel has just been formed in 1948 by the United Nations when 
there's a history of Israel and having kings. And so we also saw that in Genesis 49, that there was a blessing, that there would be a blessing, uh, especially to Judah, where the, the, we would see those kings. And, and this blessing would, would extend to having their hand on the neck of their enemies. Remember, Israel has, has always been a, 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 a country, a nation in conflict. For them, peace is, it, it, it's, it's a dream to have peace. And they always have enemies. They started with enemies. The Canaanites were there before Abraham. Abraham was then there and Abraham left and had to come back. And there were Canaanites then. And then Israel left again. And, you know, uh, Joshua came back and the land's filled with Canaanites again. And so it's been a never-ending cycle of the dirt, the land of Israel being occupied by foreign inhabitants and Israel. And so, yes, everybody has a past claim to a portion of the dirt. We saw then that as Israel came out of the bondage, out of 400 years of bondage in Egypt, and with its new man of God, Moses, in Exodus 3.17, that, that God reinforced this covenant to Moses, explaining to him that, look, um, I, God saying this, I will bring you out of Egypt. I will give you the land of Canaan. So again, this isn't a Jewish thing. This isn't a, you know, a manifest destiny kind of thing. This is from God. And God kept that promise and, and, and made it happen. But for one thing, Exodus 23, 20 through 22 says, If you obey me, if you obey me, I will destroy the people in the land of the Canaanites. But what if they don't? What if they didn't obey God? Then what? Well, we have scripture. We, we know what happened. Because if they don't obey, well, then there will be a consequence to disobedience. This is one of the, the biggest things that we're seeing in our society, in our society today is that nobody wants a consequence for disobedience. It's always somebody else's fault. You can blame somebody for everything. You can blame your parents. You can blame a teacher. You can blame a neighbor. You can blame a country. You can blame a university. You can blame a politician. It, it, it's a never-ending cycle of it's somebody else's fault why I am stealing this TV. It's somebody else's fault why I'm addicted to drugs. It's somebody else's fault, dot, dot, dot. It's not somebody else's fault. You have to learn to take personal accountability. And what does that mean? That means there's going to be a consequence for your actions. Now, thankfully, the blood of Christ can make it to where those consequences are not eternal hell. But make no mistake, there are things that we're going to do on this earth that will have a ripple effect. Why is that ripple different from person to person? I don't know. And it is different. 
Some people do the same sin and have a completely different consequence. But there is a consequence for disobedience. It's one of the central themes that we see throughout Scripture. It's one of the first things that mankind wants to eliminate. Because if there's no consequence, well, that means there's no absolute moral being who's in charge of making the law to dictate the consequence, to dictate the law. So you just eliminated God when you eliminate consequences. I mean, who's supposed to give the spanking? Who's supposed to give the discipline? So Deuteronomy 6, 13 through 16 tells Israel, look, I, you will get this land. You will get the promise. I will remove the, the nations. Only do not follow other gods. I am a jealous God. Remember, God is in a, in a, a marital relationship with his people. Not only is he in a father-child relationship, but he also looks at it like a marriage. And, and God is very clear throughout Scripture. He is a jealous God. And in his anger, Deuteronomy 6, in anger, listen, in anger will wipe you off the face of the earth. See, we don't like to read those verses anymore because we, we don't like consequences. If we don't like consequences, you've got to eliminate those verses. We don't like, we don't like to think in the, of God as, well, we need to fear him. We do need to fear him. He is the judge of the universe. He is the judge that's at the throne. When you come and stand in front of him at judgment day, he's the one, him and him alone, that makes that judgment. And he's the one, him and him alone, that sends to heaven or to hell. And it's, again, only through the, the get-out-of-jail-free card of Jesus Christ that we even have a chance. But make no mistake, you're standing before a jealous God. You're standing before an angry God when you are following other gods, when you play the harlot, as Scripture says. And, and, and Deuteronomy 6 says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't, don't test Him. And we have to be careful with that because like Israel, we test God. We bite the fruit and look around and we're not dead. Let's eat some more. Let's eat from more trees. Deuteronomy 7 goes on to say, When you enter the land... The Lord shall clear many nations. The Lord's in charge of this. The Lord will clear many nations. Again, warning only, do not make a covenant or be unequally yoked. Why? Because God repays those who hate him. God repays those who hate him. Why does he repay them? Because they hate him. Again, we like to sugarcoat that too, right? We like to sugarcoat, well, I, we, we don't hate God. We just like to do our own thing. You know, it's like, no, it's, it's a hatred of God. People are pursuing their own thing as a rejection to God. And so we see that there's a, a pathway for Israel, a promise to Israel, an eternal promise to Israel for land, for seed, for blessing. But the second point we need to understand is 
as, as far as Israel's futures, look, there will be punishment for Israel. As there's punishment for us. As there's punishment for anybody when there's, there's consequences for disobedience. We see this laid out perfectly in Judges 2. Judges 2.16, then the Lord raised up judges. Who are judges? Judges are the ones who are like, all right, this is the judgment, Israel, for your sinful disobedience. So God puts these people to deliver them from the hands of those who are being plundered. So this person that God has chosen to judge Israel is stepping in. Why? Because God is going to use other surrounding nations to punish Israel for their sin. Verse 17, yet they did not listen to their judges for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside from their wicked, uh, aside from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. The, ju the Lord was moved to pity by their groan groanings because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. Look, there's a consequence to disobedience. God will use other nations to judge the sin of the Israel and watching this pain, this suffering, death, right? Let's not sugarcoat it. God will then have pity. God will, will, will pull back his anger and his wrath and then send the judge to save the day, to give them mercy, something that they don't deserve. Verse 19, but it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act even more corruptly than their fathers and following other gods and serving them and bow down to them, and they, and they did not abandon their practices and their stubborn ways. So they just return right back to their bad, sinful pasts. Look at Israel today. Israel today does not worship Yahweh. Israel today makes covenants with other nations. Israel today is in alignment with, uh, with, with other countries that brought, have brought in the other gods. Israel Israelites, Israelis today have intermarried with other nations, not because of racism, but because of foreign worship, because of turning and abandoning the practices and being stubborn all the way to the point today where you can go into Israel today and most of them completely reject God. That's why God has thrown up the red flag. So, verse 20, so the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I am commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice. You didn't listen. I also will no longer drive them out. And any nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they keep the way of the Lord to walk in as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain. The nations of Israel who were the enemies of Israel were allowed to remain there as a punishment for Israel's disobedience. It wasn't 
the, the, the men of Israel who were supposed to drive out the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Philistines, it was God who was going to do that. And God took that back. And again, we can see today, we can see that today those, those foreign nations are still in the land. And we see today that God has not driven them out. We've mentioned before already that in 1948, in 1963, in 1973, and all these other little paramilitary terrorist attacks, that all these nations have come and gathered against Israel. Israel should have been blown away in its first year of existence, but God didn't let it happen. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's protection. But then God didn't drive them completely out either because Israel didn't bow down and worship God. And so the punishment for Israel begins with their rejection. They accept foreign ways, adulterous behavior. That's that, that, that um, unequally yoked relationship between God and, and Israel. And they're disobedient to God's law. Question. Or are you accepting the foreign ways around you? Do you live more like the world around you? The pop culture around you? The social justice around you? Have you accepted foreign ways? Or do you stick to the scriptures? Are you separate from the world? Or are you part of the world? Are you adulterous in your behavior? You kind of, yeah, on Sunday mornings, you're, you're, you're with God, you're married. But, but like the adulterous relationship, the rest of the week, you're cheating on God. Dancing with others, flirting with others, committing spiritual adultery. Are you obedient to God's law or disobedient? It's simple. Do you follow God's law or not? It is painful for me when I listen to the, the, the politics and politicians in certain areas of our country who espouse uh, a Christian worldview and, and are for things like abortion. How is that possible? How is that even remotely possible to be for the, the, the murder of innocent babies? How's that obedient to scripture? There's nowhere in scripture where that could even come close. Nowhere. So how does Israel reject God? Again, it's unequally yoked. Unequally yoked, that, that's that idea of the, the two oxen having that same big old wood piece on them where it's strapped on them and where one goes, the other goes, right? One goes sideways, they go sideways, turn around, sit down, stop, go. So we, we're not to be unequally yoked with, with these foreign ideas. Deuteronomy 7.2 says, if, if you do, then I will utterly destroy you. Do not make covenants. Do not intermarry with them. Do not show them favor. We, we sang the song. We're, we're in spiritual warfare here. This doesn't mean that we're, we're not trying to, to witness to people or save people or win them. But, but we're not in alignment with them. We're not in allegiance with them. We're, we're not in bed with them. We certainly don't send our kids to be trained by them all day long for 15 years. Um, that, that would be utterly inconceivable for somebody in Deuteronomy seven to understand 
That when the great Shema says, look, you're to teach your child when you lay down, when you rise up, in the morning, in the afternoon, whatever you do, all day long. Well, except for the eight hours a day when you send them back to the Egyptians or to, you know, the Philistines or the Canaanites. Um, why? Again, why? Why are we not to be unequally yoked? It's not because we don't like other countries, other nations. In fact, one of the coolest things about Christianity is we are the ultimate in multicultural. We have believers from all over the world that are welcome into the church, but not unequally yoked. Because if they're unequally yoked spiritually, then the result of that in Deuteronomy 7, 4, and, and God is perfectly clear. This is why they will turn your sons away from following me and serve other gods. You guys have met people, two, two husband and wife, one's one religion, the other one's the other, a different religion. You got to pick one. You either have to pick one and you're 50, 50, one's right, one's wrong, or you blend them together. Uh, that's wrong. Or you just created your own religion. It, it, it doesn't work. Then if you do that, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. You know, we're getting into firewood season again, right? And you're, you know, stoking the fire and doing the kindling and all that. And it's like, you know, you, you, you play with the fire, right? And you just keep poking it and kind of, it's like gets hotter and hotter and hotter. That's, that's what we're doing. We're like poking, poking God, kindling his anger, his, his rage, his wrath. Don't ever forget there's a consequence for disobedience. There's a consequence for disobedience. There's a consequence for being unequally yoked. For, for young people in here who aren't married yet, it is not an option at all. To be unequally yoked. Well, the second aspect we see of the punishment for Israel is Israel's adultery. Um, they are supposed to be married to God and God alone. We're not polytheistic. We're not interdenominational. Interdenominational is, is, is a really clever word for polytheism. It really is. Because you got all the denominations and all the different belief systems all put into one bag of what? Well, I guess anything goes. Well, what do you believe in? Well, we believe in, if you believe in everything, you believe in nothing. So deceptive, so deceptive. So the, the spiritual adultery is, is, is a warning sign. In Deuteronomy 7, 9 through 10, God says, I will repay those. I will repay you for this unequally yoked. I will repay you for... And what God says about spiritual adultery isn't, well, it's cool you believe in something. It's cool that you, you know, you're like a religious person. You're spiritual. No, he says, I will hate you. Is that clear? Deuteronomy 8, 19-20. If, if you forget God and go after other gods and serve and worship, I will destroy you. Is that clear? Uh, Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 gives us this great picture. Look, it's cut and dry. If you obey me, if you obey me, then I am going to bless you. 
I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your city. I'm going to bless your offspring. I'm going to bless your basket. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, if you keep the commandments of the Lord and walk in your ways, then I will bless you. But if, if you don't obey me, then we've got some curses for you. I'll curse your city. I'll curse your basket. I'll curse your offspring. I mean, how horrific does that sound? But look, when, when you are disobedient to God, when you don't follow God, well, what do you think your kids are going to do? They're going to follow your pattern. It, it's that caught versus taught thing. Well, don't do what I do, son. Uh, I'm going to do exactly what you do, dad, times 10. So when you do bad things, I'll probably do bad things. You've just given me license to do bad things. And the Lord will send, here's a curse, confusion. Do you see confusion in the world today? Do you see confusion with children? Where, where does confusion from children comes? It comes from their parents who are confused. And God says that on account of the evil of your deeds, because you forsaked me, I will give you confusion. I'll give you pestilence, fiery heat, mildew, dust. My favorite, the itch. If you ever had poison oak, you know, the itch just drives you crazy. Verse 27, the Lord smite you with boils of Egypt, with tumors, with scabs, with madness, with blindness. You don't want to play this game. You don't want to play this game. That's for committing spiritual adultery. Hosea 1 verses 4 through 9 God says, I will no longer have compassion. Do you want to get to that point? Where's the line? See, I don't know where that line is, but there's a line. And at, you cross that line, you just entered into full grace, full mercy, full, everything's, you know, we'll, we'll take care of it too. No longer compassion. You're cut off. And then Hosea 1, 4 through 9 says, until there's compassion. Which is like, God is so good. We just read it in, in uh, Romans 11. That God takes the, the olive that represents Israel and starts breaking off the branches of Israel. Breaks them off. Breaks them off. Throws them on the side of the ground. Then what does he do? He's spent entirety of trying to put it back together again. Giving them chance after chance after chance. That's the beautiful thing with the relationship he has with Israel. It's a beautiful thing, relationship that he has with us, um, which is exciting. Well, the minor prophets give us a, a, an overview of, of, again, this punishment, this punishment that comes to Israel for their disobedience. And, and why are we going through this? Because we look today and we go, but, but I thought Israel has a future. Israel does have a future. And I thought Israel had a past. They, they do have a past. Then why are they suffering today? Well, they're suffering today because, as we've already read, they're breaking covenant with God. They're breaking communion with God. They're breaking their, their, their marriage relationship with God. And so, Joel is calling Israel to repentance, but reminding them, Joel 2.32, whoever calls on my name can be delivered. Beautiful. And Joel 3 says, the, lie, the Lord roars to avenge 
the blood of Israel. So you got this beautiful picture of God as a lion roaring, waiting, hoping, desiring to avenge the blood of Judah. As a shepherd, as Amos is described, the Lord roars from Zion because of the transgressions of Israel, but he must rebuke and judge. He must rebuke and judge. Amos 3.2, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Amos 4, you have not listened to me. Amos 5.21, God will reject their worship because they haven't been listening. So you think Israel can just wake up today and go, wow, we don't like um, you know, being terrorized. God help us. They don't do anything else that has any part of a relationship, but they just want that temporary relief. Again, kind of like the, the adulterer in a marriage relationship that, you know, is sorry they got caught. You know, that, that, that's crying, please forgive me. Please fix this. You, you weren't willing to do anything to prevent this problem. You, in fact, you did everything to create the problem. And now you just want as a snap of the finger Problem solved? Doesn't quite work that way. Again, there's a line in the sand where God will reject that false worship. He's the one who judges it, by the way, not us. I don't know what false worship is and genuine worship. So we will assume it's genuine worship. But God knows. God knows our heart. In Amos 9.9, 9, a verse that frightens me to the core not just for Israel, but for my own soul. He says, I will sieve Israel. This is brutal language. This is language. We don't like to hear this. The, the, the Lord hates. The Lord rebukes. The Lord kindles anger. The Lord sieves. I don't want God to look at me so deeply that, that that's what's on the table. That I, I, I would be frightened of that. I don't want to be sieved. That's supposed to turn us from our sin and turn us back to God on our knees, begging for mercy. Zechariah 1-2 says, The Lord was very angry with the fathers of Israel, and so he cries out to turn from their evil ways. Kind of like when Jesus says, like a, a mother hen trying to collect her chicks. This is God's heart. God does not... God did not send Jesus to seek and destroy. Sent Jesus to seek and save the lost. The heart, the passion is to be like the, the mother hen to gather everybody together to save the whole nation. And again, we see that portrayed in, in Romans 11. But, but see, the rejection after rejection after rejection doesn't allow that to happen. And so the Lord warns, there's a day coming in Zechariah 14, a day is coming when the Lord will strike all the people against Israel. Much like the day of the judges, enough is enough is enough. Remember, we stated this before. Our alliance is not with modern day Israel. We are Christians. We believe in Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. They rejected him. 
Israel rejected their Messiah. Not all of Israel. There were 12 guys who didn't. Remember, they were Jews. Most of the churches, the early churches planted throughout the New Testament were Jews in those churches. But as a nation, as a whole, there was a rejection of Jesus Christ. And we see that not only a rejection of Jesus, they're not even Israelites anymore. They're not Jews or Christians. Now we know and we have a, a, a soft spark in, in, in our heart because they were the tree of old, right? As Romans 11 says. But make no mistake, we're not trying to be Jewish. That's why we don't do feasts and tabernacles. We're, we're new covenant believers. We're new, new covenant. We're under the, the, the saving grace of the blood of Jesus Christ, not a goat, not a calf, right? And they need to come across the table to our side. We don't go back to their side. And that's a fundamental problem because they are not believers. They are not Christians. They have not professed the name of Jesus Christ. Well, there's only one way to the Father. There's only one. There's not two programs here. There's, there's so much confusion with the Old Testament, and the New Testament, like, well, you could be an Old Testament Jew and, you know, that's cool. And a New Testament Christian. No, 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 no. This is a, a, is a, a thread. This is the, the progress of redemptive history. And, and Israel was the start of that. But through the covenant, through the Abrahamic covenant, in fact, they... That is completed in the new covenant, sealed by the blood of Christ. And so there's a day coming when the Lord will again strike all the nations, all the people against Israel. And that's a picture of what we see when we look at the book of Revelation. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in coming weeks. And God is begging, and Micah says, God is begging and, and, and that they will watch expectantly for the Lord. But they're not. They want missiles. Look, look Israel today is no different than the, than it's the neighboring countries. They, they, they think the problem is solved militarily, and they think the solution is dirt. That's not the solution for either one of them. The solution, again, is Jesus Christ. So our goal and desire is for them to find Christ too. Our goal and desire is not for military victory, right? That, that's not the ultimate goal. And we have to be very, very careful with that. It's beautiful to see in Micah 7.18 that God will pardon sin. He will pass over rebellious acts. And there is a remnant. There is a remnant waiting there there's a remnant but they've got to repent they've got to repent unfortunately we see israel still having that that same heart as the 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 jews in the day of jesus in matthew 27 25 when they say you know give us barabbas and crucify jesus and let his blood be upon us well this is what we're seeing today we're seeing the consequences of Israel's disobedience. Now, that doesn't make the Palestinians right. That doesn't make the Arab nations right. That doesn't make the Muslims right. But it gives us an understanding of a broken off Israel. 
it gives us an understanding of the of the why. And so next time we'll talk about the the prediction for Israel in the future, the remnant, the beautiful remnant that we see in Romans 11. God is so sweet. You, the only way to fully understand and comp- comprehend his grace and his mercy is to, is to know fully who he is. He is the Lord God Almighty, creator of the universe, all powerful, all authority, and, and his standard is absolute perfection. His standard is, is absolute devotion in this marital relationship, in this father child relationship. He demands our very best. He's jealous. And yes, he gets angry with our adultery. He gets angry when we turn against him. He gets angry when we serve others. And there is a punishment for that. And so for us to understand grace, you got to understand wrath. You have to understand the good news is there's a heaven waiting for us. But you better understand for those who have not bowed the knee before the throne of God, there is an eternal fire. There is a place called hell. It is very, very real. That is what drives me to, to, to preach is I don't want anybody going to hell. At, at, at the core of my being is I'm an evangelist. I want people to know Jesus. You know why? Because I know what the end result is. And it's real. As real as heaven is, so is hell. And so the good news is you don't have to go there. There's nobody in this room that needs to go there. You can have full assurance and confidence that you're not going there by placing your hope, your faith in Christ and Christ alone. But if you haven't, and we look at your tree, your personal tree of life, and there's no fruit, and we look at God's commandments and you break them, well, then you may fall under that umbrella of wrath, which we don't want. We don't want. And so as we prepare our hearts for communion, um, I'm going to ask Livy to come up and pass the, uh, the bread. It's over there. <clears throat> 